Hello, Peter. Good morning. Let's see. So we better get started. This is, um, let's see, I'm looking at my watch here. It's Friday, the 27th of December, 2013. This is Solder Smoke 157. We're very pleased to have with us again in this episode by popular demand, <laughs> Peter Parker, VK3YE. Last time we talked, uh, we, it was just amazing. Uh, we had a great, great conversation here with Peter. We talked about all kinds of things. And the one thing that we left hanging a little bit was uh, phasing, phasing rigs. And Peter said we, were, we, were gonna, we agreed to talk about uh, phasing rigs because I know that's been a recent kind of uh, you know, interest of, of Peter's down there. He's got a lot, of, a lot of homebrew, a lot of QRP interests. Of course, he's what I consider the real guru of double sideband, but uh, but lately he's been into phasing rigs. So, I don't know, well, Peter. Maybe before we uh, we start with the phasing rigs, just talk a little bit about where we are here on the calendar. It's uh, it's December 27th. Uh, Santa Claus has arrived. What I was going to mention to the Sarasota community is that he uh, he was very good to me, and he left under the tree a, a new uh, a new oscilloscope. A digital scope, a Rigol or a Regal. I don't know how you say it, but uh, a digital scope in a neat little box. And uh, I've been playing around with that. And also left me a, um, a uh, jigsaw. I think you told me that Santa Claus had a delayed arrival in Australia, perhaps because of the distances involved. But uh, maybe let us know what you have, uh, what, what, you, what you hope to see, perhaps on the epiphany there under the, the Christmas tree in Melbourne. Uh, back to you, uh, Peter. Uh, let's see. Let's, let's do it with the old call signs here for once. VK3YE, this is N2CQR. Right. Hello, Bill, and all listeners. Thanks for having me on again. And there has been a couple of Christmas deliveries, one fairly early, um, a couple of kites from the discount store Audi. Well, what has that got to do with radio? Well, quite a few people are using kites to support portable antennas, so I thought I'd give them a go as well, given that they were so cheap. Uh, I won't say what happened to them or what I thought of them. That's coming up on an upcoming video to be uploaded in the next day or so. But, yeah, there's a couple of projects and uh, future things um, that are on my list. Um, the FX4, the LMR, a small trail-friendly type QRP radio. Very tempted by that. Um, given the places I go, I can't quite justify a KX3, but the FX4 does 40 through to 17 metres, which are the bands that I make most contacts on, and uh, they should be. Uh, and that's something that uh, I'm very, very tempted. That uh, the uh, KX, not KX4, the uh, FX4 is something that I'm very tempted to um, uh, to get when that comes out. And it's been, of course, in daylight saving. The uh, mornings have been early, and I've been up early. I've, I've been up early quite a few mornings to do QRP portable operating and uh, quite a few contacts into the States, mainly on 20 metres. Uh, Bill, I have tried 17 metres and had one or two contacts, but generally 20 metres seems to... Uh, do a little bit better from here. Um, into CQR, VK3YE. Okay, Peter, real good. Excellent. Yeah, well, 
kites. Uh, yeah, you know, it's an important. There's an important radio connection there, and Mar- Marconi had his antennas supported by kites. I, my, I'm, I'm a big kite fan too. Although I haven't done anything with it in a long time, I made out in the Azores. I made a big kite. Um, a call. What do they call it? A, a, a Scott sled. Yes, a Scott sled. One of those big kites. I made it out of fishing poles and plastic, uh, black plastic garbage bags. It was a menacing looking thing. And we used it to take up a, um, a little camera with a 555 timer on it. And we're shooting pictures from up in the kite. That was great fun. That, that, that kite crashed in a tree here near our house in Virginia. Bits and piece of it, pieces of it are still visible close to uh, Maria's school. But uh, good fun with the kites. And uh, fine on the, uh, the, the, the trail-friendly radios. I know what you mean about early morning. Um, I am an early morning radio amateur here and that presents something of a problem for me because my favorite band is 17 and it's usually still closed at that hour so that is why my uh, my project now is building a, uh, a version of the Bidex rig that will uh, will work on 40 meters I'm building a 4020 uh, Bidex the um, IF will be at 11 megahertz and the VFO will run at around 3.6, 3.8 switchable for um, either 20 or 40. And I'm pleased to report that I made major progress of it here over the, uh, the Christmas break. Yesterday was a particularly productive day. I built uh, four or five stages of it. So I'm just waiting for a few parts and then we should get that on the air. But I've been having great fun on 17. I really think you should take a look at that uh, that band. It, I, w- with my BIDX 17, I'm going to brag here a little bit. With my BIDX 17, with the 5 watts out, true QRP, 5 watts PEP, just to the dipole, I've worked uh, Japan three times, getting 5.9 reports on one of the QSOs. I uh, worked into South Africa, which is 8,000 miles or more. And um, just uh, the, on Christmas Eve, worked uh, uh, St. Saint Hel- Saint Helens Island, Santa Elena, down there in the South Atlantic. 16-year-old kid down there on the island running a, running a pile-up, and I, I managed to talk to him on 17. So don't give up on 17. It's uh, It's got a lot of potential there, there Peter. But uh, glad to hear that you've got some uh, projects on the horizon and that uh, the kites are there. We'll look forward to seeing that video. So let's see. What do you think? Uh, should we jump jump right into it? Uh, what do you want to tell us about phasing rigs? Maybe you, should, you, could, talk, you could introduce the phasing rigs a little bit. And maybe I could talk a little bit about my my struggles to understand the circuitry. You know, this is a topic that I think is going to be really interesting because I was thinking about it. It takes us back to really early days of, of ham radio. In my case, it takes us back to the my Helicrafters HT37. It takes us through uh, the, 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 the rebirth of the DC receiver launched by uh, Wes Hayward in 1968. And it takes us all the way into modern... SDR systems. I'm going to time out. So back to you, Peter. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Um, a couple of comments there which I cannot avoid remarking on. Uh, 40 and 20 meters with your BitX transceiver. I tip that you'll make more contacts on that rig than anything else you've had. They're great bands at all times of the day. And in fact, DeMore and, Haymo- Hay- uh, and Haywood said that, uh, I think, in solid state design. So you'll do very well with that. And as far as 17 metres, just looking at my log, most of the contacts um, 
These are ones in the early evening have tend to be have tended to be north south paths. So I'd imagine that you would be working um if if that was similar in your area as well, you'd be working a lot of South America. Just looking at the log here, um quite a good opening a few days ago. Uh Japan, Philippines, various other places. Uh, very, very good north south path for uh, um, 17 and 15 metres, um, whereas somewhat lower frequencies like 14 meg and uh, 7 meg around the grey line period are, uh, um, are very do very well for east-west paths. As far as phasing rig goes, I think the first thing uh, um, is the aesthetics of it. Um, I think of the filter method as being a brute force method of obtaining the desired sideband. You are generating a double sideband signal and then you are slicing half of it off with a sharp crystal, um, in, as in, in the crystal filter. Um, that's the filter method of SSB. And phasing to me seems more elegant. It is harder to understand and that's what may put people off. I certainly don't understand it. I've, I've tried to read things and I'll have to read more because it's not necessarily something that you understand in the first description. But there's both a mystery, a gentleness and an elegance about phasing. And it's almost an aesthetic sensibility with generating phasing. And also there are benefits in terms of the receive audio quality as filters can be, uh, crystal filters can be uh, somewhat non-linear. So listening to a phasing receiver is certainly uh, a great treat to the builder. I'll, I'm probably about to time out, so I'll put it back to you, Bill, and you can remind me of the question that you asked. But I thought they were some worthwhile introductory remarks on phasing. Very good, Peter. Yeah, I, I, I really like the way you, you talk about the, uh, the elegance and the gentleness of it. Simplicity, maybe not. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's a little bit more complicated. And when you first mentioned the phasing rigs, this reminded me of an old battle that I had. You know, I, I mentioned I, I have sitting in front of me right here a Halicrafters HT37. This is the uh, the transmitter, the real first real big sideband transmitter that I had as a kid. Got it with uh, paper route money back 1974, I think. And I still have it. Same same piece of equipment. And this is a phasing transmitter. They use the phasing method of sideband generation. I think what was going on, the helicopters guys were trying to save money, and crystals were, crystal filters were expensive, so they used the phasing method. And as a kid, I struggled to understand this thing. I really, I wanted to understand how all the circuitry in my rigs worked. And try as I might, I couldn't, couldn't really get how... The phase shifts that were described in the Helicrafters manual resulted in the elimination of one or the other sidebands. And it took me a lot of time to figure this out. And kind of um, enlightenment came late, much later on. I'm going to read to you here um, uh, a couple paragraphs from uh, Solder Smoke the Book <laughs> as I put myself in the uh, book reading mode here. Um, there are a number of ways to get rid of one of the sidebands. A sufficiently narrow crystal filter is the simplest method, but those crystals cost money, and there is a cheaper, 
but more complicated technique. I guess the boys at Helicrafters were trying to make the HT37 price competitive because they went with the cheap but complicated phasing technique. There is no way they could have known how much technical head scratching and teenage heartache that design decision would eventually cause. When my father would come home from work and find weird annotated electronic diagrams spread across our dining room table, a good number of them were undoubtedly block diagrams of phasing SSB rigs. All right, now, to, to figure this out, what actually, what, what, what helped me figure it out was an old book, and sometimes you have to go to the old books. And I found this old book at a, at a probably at Hamfest in Virginia, probably 1994, 1990, probably early 90s, something like that. But it's single sideband for the radio amateur by the American Radio Relay Lake, priced at $4. Let's see, published in 1970. The technical background on the phasing technique, it's not as complicated as it seems. A lot of times, the descriptions, the so-called descriptions of the phasing technique are, I think, overly complicated. It's, it's, it's really not that bad. And it, it's the kind of thing that really cries out for a diagram. So I'm going to try to put some diagrams of this up on my blog. But I'll try to put it in a nutshell here. What happens, and I'm, I'll start out by talking on the transmit side, but then it, this also applies to receivers. It turns out that if you have um, two modulators and you feed one with the normal VFO energy plus well, the normal RF energy and audio, and then you take a second modulator and feed it with RF energy that's been phase shifted by 90 degrees and audio energy that's been phase shifted by 90 degrees. Reference the first. You make your references the first modulator. You end up with outputs in which one of the sidebands, outputs that if you combine them, one of the sidebands will be reinforced and the other will be nulled out. That's essentially it. And uh, the reason I had trouble with this was I had I was thinking as a kid that if you were just phase shifting it by 90 degrees that's not enough to null a signal out you to to fit, to null something out you have to have a 180 degree phase shift well it turns out that because of the way mixers work because of everything we know about mixers and 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 the trigonometry involved. There's a specific phase relationship between the sidebands. And if you shift the RF by 90 degrees and the audio by 90 degrees, reference another modulator, the combined outputs will allow, allow you to knock down completely one of the other sidebands, one of the sidebands, and reinforce the other. And that's the, the way that, that Telecrafters got their sideband generation. It works quite well in my old rig. And I think that accounts for the, the elegance and the gentleness that, that you describe uh, in, the, in the phasing rigs, uh, Peter. So uh, anyway, I, that's the way I understand it. And the same, as I said, the same techniques that apply to my Helicrafters HT37 also apply to receivers. And so you could do the same thing on the receive side. And you can come up with a nice, this is what Rick Campbell calls 
single signal direct conversion receiver. So you have a direct conversion receiver, but because you have two product detectors essentially instead of two balanced modulators, and you have these phasing systems installed, you can null out one or the other of the two sidebands. I hope I'm making sense, uh, Peter. VK3YE and 2CQR. Yeah, 2CQR, VK3YE. You're fine, Bill. And I have a copy of single sideband for the radio amateur from the ARRL 1970 edition. So um, I picked up from the Hamfest for a few dollars, and I'm, I'm glad I did. A lot of ideas and, and things in there. And there are just some approaches, like using um, very simple audio phase shift networks. They may not have the ultimate in rejection, but they are still very useful for a simple receiver. Even achieving 20 dB of rejection is a big help, even though it's although even though higher performance receivers, you'd expect a lot more than that. Um, but for a simple receiver, for the few parts involved, it's a um, um, great approach. In fact, one thing that got my interest in phasing was a transceiver that was described by SP5AHT. And on further investigation, it came from a Russian design. Um, they're all on the web, though they are quite hard to find. And if you've got the latest Sprat, I've been told that it is described in there. Um, I call it the unpolished phasing SSB receiver. And if you look at the circuitry, one of the things that appeals to me about it and part of the aesthetics of um, the phasing method is you can use passive stages in the balance modulators, the phase shift components, and and also the filters. And by using passive components, it is much easier to have the circuit work on both transmit and receive. And of course, it's a similar philosophy to the BITX, the bidirectional transceiver. However, there, you are using some intermediate frequency amplifiers that are switched on, on and off in various directions by applying DC voltage. Again, that's very elegant um, for a filter-type SSB rig, but I thought the phasing approach of using passive stages, although it is somewhat limited in gain, and you do need to provide gain somewhere along the chain, is particularly elegant and I did build an 80 meter phasing SSB rig based on that but I'd certainly encourage people first of all to build a phasing receiver first. There were a few challenges for instance some of the older books mention for the audio filtering high value inductances which you cannot easily obtain or if you can they require hundreds of turns of fine wire and that is because the filtering is done at quite a high impedance, both in the valve days. Um, there are things called 2Q4s, I think, which are commercially available um, audio phase shift networks. And uh, 
um, they use precise component values and the audio filtering required quite precise values as well. Now if you are able to do the filtering at a lower impedance, i.e. 8 ohms, then it becomes much easier because the inductance values for a audio low pass filter are much lower and even off the shelf RF chokes and the capacitance values are higher i.e. you can use electrolytics. So what I, what I found with my phasing SSV receiver, it could work quite successfully. You could use two 1K to 8 ohm audio transformers. You can get them from an old transistor radio. And so you're going from 1K to 1K via 8 ohms, at which point you do your audio filtering. And of course that is required for the bandwidth on receive to keep the selectivity down and also of course to uh, conserve bandwidth on transmit. So um, that was something that put me off phasing rigs, um, getting the filtering right, but it was an approach that's worked and, uh, and has been very successful. All right. Yeah, it, 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 there, is, there is this element of, of elegance to it. And um, you know, I've, I've watched phasing rigs over the, and they've been, they've, there's, they've been kind of appearing in, in QST going back to 1992, 1993. And again, I think a lot of it was Rick Campbell with the, um, I think his, his, the, re the receiver was the R2, and it was um, a single signal. Hold on a second, I've got to let the dog in. Yeah, single signal um, direct conversion receiver using the phasing technique. And yeah, I've I've never other than the only the only one that I've really done the only the only use of this technology that I've made is with the, with the Halicrafters HT37. I'm glad you have the single sideband book. If the, I think the best chapters of that particular book are the first two or first three, the articles by uh, by Donald Norgard W6VMH. The first is why single sideband. The second is the phasing method of, of generating single sideband, and that were, for me that were really was an, those articles were real eye openers, and let me kind of understand the technique. I think I think you, you really should dig into those articles a little bit, Peter, because you're doing so much good work with this stuff. It, it really helps if you get an understanding of the if you see how they do it. All of a sudden, it becomes even more beautiful and more elegant. So uh, so dig into there in, in, into uh, Don's uh, articles. I I was really grateful. <laughs> it was one of these things where somebody really explains something clearly. You say, "Wow, you're very, very grateful." And I was grateful for those articles. So I'm glad you have that book. Um, you know, I saw something else on um, on phasing methods. There's a fella in Israel, and I wish I had his call here. But on the EMRFD group and the Experimental Methods in RF Design Yahoo group, uh, Roger Hayward. Uh, mentioned that uh, he found some really good pictures there of a phasing rig. So take a look at that if you get a chance. But there's some uh, amazing things. Tell us a little bit more about the SP5 AHT rig. What's that like and uh, what bands does it cover? And maybe talk a little bit about that. Or, or, or if you want, tell us a little bit about something that, something that you've built using the phasing technique. Uh, back to you, Peter. All right, Bill. Well, the SP5 AHT rig, I think it was developed about 10 or 15 years ago and it was published in a Polish magazine and the circuit 
and the article is available online but it's somewhat hard to find. Um, it is a complete 80 metre phasing SSB transceiver. It is very QRP, only about three or 400 milliwatts output and from memory it uses just eight transistors or not much more for the complete phasing SSB transceiver which I thought was pretty impressive. Um, there, are some, there are some receivers that use a lot more than that and they're not even a single signal receiver. Yet this was a complete 80 metre phasing SSB transceiver using something like 8 or 10 transistors. And I believe it was frequency agile. I, can't, I, I suspect it was either a free running VFO or a ceramic resonator. Um, for say 3.69 megahertz and that is what inspired me because I had previously seen phasing SSB rigs described but there is always something that was too hard about them um, whether it was the phase shift network it was some obscure uh, combination of values that was not stated because in the old days there were commercial units you could buy um, or whether it was achieving high amounts of inductance for the audio filtering um, or, or just the complexity like some phasing rigs are quite complex. Anyway this particular design was quite simple and had few reasons for me not to build it so I did in slightly modified form and I first of all started as a receiver and that is described in I believe the latest Sprat, it hasn't yet arrived but it, it should fairly shortly. I've called it the unpolished phasing SSB receiver and that is my implementation of it only as a receiver although I make a few small changes to make it a transceiver. Um, but I'll run through the circuit for the receiver. From the antenna is a low pass filter. I use a lot of moulded RF chokes um, around 2.2 because there's some handy values like 2.2 microhenries um, is a good value for an 80 meter low pass filter. Um, the capacitor values you can use disk ceramic capacitors as it's only a receiver. 1.5 nanohenries um, as the capacitor in the middle and then the up to on either end are 820 picofarad or if you're just to use a single low pass, a single inductor in the low pass filter then it's 820 picofarad aside. Um, and by the way it's, um, with, um, I'll digress a little bit, um, pre-round RF chokes are great. Uh, some rules of thumb, 10 microhenries is, will resonate on 80 meters with about 200 picofarads of capacitance. So around 180 picofarads or thereabouts, a preferred value. Um, that will resonate on 80 metres, so that is good for a 80 metre receiver front end. And for 40 metres, 4.7 microhenries and 100 picofarads. So if you don't want to wind an inductor, and for some reason, a lot of people say they don't like winding inductors or toids, but if you can use pre-round RF chokes and they can work okay. Maybe not the highest Q, but they are satisfactory. Anyway, getting back onto this receiver, following the front end low pass filter is a one transistor RF amp, just standard NPN transistor. 
That goes into a tuned circuit, um, just resonant on 80 metres. Now, the primary is um, tuned to 3.6 meg. The secondary has, in parallel, uh, has across it a 220 picofarad capacitor, and you need to use, it's better to use a 10 turn potentiometer, 500 ohm. And the reason for that is the 220 and the 500 ohm, that needs to be variable, and it's set so that the output from that secondary of the inductor is balanced and that gives you your two phase shift outputs. So in this particular receiver, you, you can either do the phase shifting on the output of the local oscillator or to the incoming signal. Um, it doesn't matter. Most circuits do it with the, um, with the local oscillator, but in this case, it's okay to do it with um, to phase shift your incoming signal into two signals 90 degrees apart. They are then applied to four diodes, um, uh, a product detector, and from there, of course, you've got the signal from the VFO. In this case, I'm a big fan of ceramic resonators, so I use a one transistor oscillator for that, followed by a buffer. And then the output from the twin, um, in transmitters, they would be described as balanced modulators, but we'll call them product detectors. You've got two outputs, this time only at audio frequencies, but there are still two outputs, again, 90 degrees phase shift from one another, and they go into this, um, the uh, phase uh, splitting or, or combining circuit comprising of a few resistors and capacitors of a particular value, and that brings it into one signal. There's a center tap transformer there. Then, as I discussed before, it goes from 1K to 8 ohm. That's where your high-pass filtering is. That provides the main selectivity element. So you mess around with the values there of capacitors and inductors till you get a 3 kilohertz low pass. Then the, um, it steps back up in impedance from 8 ohms to 1K and then fed into an LM386 audio amplifier. But not just any LM386 audio amplifier. This one, it has been previously described in Scratch, but it's a particularly high gain circuit. Um, it's, there's an article called Unleashed the LM386, and uh, you add a few extra component values and you can get an enormously much greater increasing gain compared to the usual thing where you just connect a capacitor between pins one and eight. Um, with this arrangement, you add a few extra components between involving pins one and pins five and um, just a few resistors and capacitors and you can get a much greater gain out of an LM36. So that's all this receiver is. It's a very simple 80 meter receiver, just counting the number of components. One, two, three. There's something like only three transistors, in fact four transistors, but you actually don't need the extra fourth one. That's just to uh, provide an extra local oscillator, four transistors and one IC and that's a complete single signal phasing SSB receiver and it's described in, and should be described in the latest spread. All right, very interesting. Well, yeah, I'd be, uh, I'm going to take a look at that obviously when Sprat gets here. It has not yet arrived. You know, we get, we, get, we get email alerts when Sprat hits the mailbox and uh, so I, I saw that, and uh, but mine hasn't hasn't arrived yet. So maybe maybe today. Um, well, so much to comment on. Yeah, fine on the on the low pass filters. 
And I was just thinking the other day, as I was sitting here winding toroids, I was winding uh, trifiller, trifiller toroids for the Bidex, for the, um, for, the, for the mixer. And I know that there are a lot of people out there, when they look at a rig like this, they, the thing that turns them off is uh, winding the toroids. When really, it's uh, once you get the hang of it, it's one of the. It's it's quite simple. So, but but there is this aversion to toroid winding. I don't quite I don't get it. But um, anyway, um, and yeah, on the on the low pass filters, fine on using the molded uh, chokes. Why not? Sure, you got the uh, you know I mean 2.2 microhenries is 2.2 microhenries. Other than the, uh, the changes in in Q that you mentioned, the variations in Q. Um, and so the SP5 AHT, let me ask you this, Peter. Um, you, you talked about doing the phase shifting either on the incoming signal or on the, the VFO. So how many phase shift networks are involved? Do you have just one 90-degree phase shift network, or is there, um, are there, are there two? Or is it, are you just doing phase shifting? Are you just doing one 90-degree phase shift on either the, um, the VFO or the... Um, and, and, and I'm, I'm just trying to get a sense of the the, uh, the architecture of it. Is this a? Are we still? Are we talking basically a, a direct conversion receiver? Is the VFO running at the operating frequency? I uh, I might have I might have missed that. I was thinking of, I was trying to relate what you were saying to the um, the articles in single sideband for the radio amateur because there they have they always have two phasing phase shift networks. There's one phase shift network that shifts. And here, here we're mostly talking about on the transmit side, but they have a phase shift network that moves the um, uh, the RF, and then they have a phase shift network that also moves by 90 degrees the modulating audio. So in that system, they have two 90 degrees phase shift networks. In the SP5 uh, AHT rig, um, are there also two, or they, or is there just the one? And is it is it a direct conversion receiver? Um, maybe uh, I, I might have been kind of zoned out thinking about the dog at that point. But 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 let me know if I have that wrong. VK three VK three YE and two CQR. Yeah, definitely direct conversion. The local oscillator is on three point five to three point six megahertz using a ceramic resonator. Or in this case, I was fortunate to have two ceramic resonators, one on 3.58 and one on 3.69. And they can each cover roughly 100 kilohertz each in a, in a VXO type arrangement. So I've got a switching between them. Um, and that, that's another thing with VXOs, which is another of my obsessions. If you try and switch crystals in the same VXO circuit, then you introduce extra capacitance and you do not want to do that because that reduces the frequency range that you can cover. Um, you, you really do, do need to keep capacitance as low as you, you can to ensure that there is still coverage at the top end of your pulling range. And so what I did was I thought, well, I'd have two separate oscillators, one on with each ceramic resonator permanently connected to each and then I was doing the switching just by switching the DC to them. And then they share the same buffer amplifier, which then goes to the other stages. Um, and if you wanted to, you could, could actually do that, um, have a dual band thing where you've got one 
ceramic resonator on 3.6 meg and another on 7 meg and, and make it a dual band. Now, um, in relation to the question on phase shift networks, yes, you do need two phase shift networks in any phasing rig, um, 90 degrees at audio um, and 90 degrees at RF. Now, if you leave out the phase shift, the audio phase shift network, and I'd recommend building a receiver somewhere along the line that does leave that out, then if we, um, if you trace a phasing receiver circuit, you basically have the incoming RF um, that then, uh, you, if if you take the output of the two product detectors, you would have two audio signals 90 degrees apart. Now, in a normal phasing SSB receiver, you combine, you, you put those through um, phase shift network and you combine it and filter it and that provides your single signal output. And if you want to go to the opposite sideband, i.e. upper sideband and not lower sideband, then you swap the polarity of the connections around to the audio phase shift network. Now, supposing if you didn't have an audio phase shift network, what you can do is connect each output of the product detector, uh, 90 degrees different, to two audio amplifiers, i.e. effectively um, a stereo amplifier. And then you put them into your left and your right channels. So one ear is receiving a signal that is 90 degrees different from the other. And that's called a binaural receiver. Um, and if you wanted to, you could actually have a switch. So you're switching between binaural and monaural um, with the two audio outputs shorted together. It is mentioned in experimental methods for RF design. It, it's a somewhat unusual listening sensation that very few people actually have the privilege of, of hearing unless you build a binaural receiver. And it's quite simple. I would describe it as a novelty. Personally, for receiving weak DX signals, I would still prefer a single signal receiver. Or if you wanted something very simple, then just a straight direct conversion receiver. But it is a novelty, particularly when receiving CW signals. Um, it's a sensual experience, um, especially if there's lightning static. That sounds, um, uh, um, you, it, it, there's a degree of spatialness, if that's a word, or, or, or a f sort of a stereo effect. It's very hard to describe. Uh, you really do need to listen to a binaural receiver to um, work out what I'm on, a, on about. But as you tune across the band, uh, a carrier signal swishing across the band goes from one ear to the other. It's, it's quite an amazing sensual experience with a binaural receiver. Definitely a project worth building. Um, but yeah, getting back to the question about the RF and audio phase shift, uh, you do need to do both of them, otherwise it's not a true single signal receiver. And the RF phase shift can either be applied, and it's most often applied at the local oscillator level where you're, you're feeding the two signals 90 degrees into the, um, your two product detectors, or alternatively, you can phase shift the incoming signal. Um, and again, you're feeding that into the product detectors. So hope I've answered your question, Bill. Well, you certainly got me uh, <laughs> interested in, in building the binaural receiver, something I've been meaning to do for a long time. 
And uh, it seems like everybody who does it and, and talks about it becomes kind of an evangelist for the binaural experience. And I think Farhan recently did this and was was talking about it. And I think he, I think it was he who said that there's there are two kinds of radio amateurs out there: those who've listened to a binaural receiver and those who've not done so yet. <laughs> I'm in I'm in the latter category, so I have to do it. I have to do that. Okay, so um, yeah, very interesting. Okay, so you've got the one phase shift network there, and if you don't do the phase shift. I, I think I'm following you. So you, you've, you've phase shifted the, the RF coming in, so you've got the 90 degrees there. And from the SP5 AHT rig, you've got um, basically uh, audio coming out that is 90 degrees shifted, two kinds of audio. Um, when do you do the other 90 degree phase shift to get to sig a single signal in this rig, uh, 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 Peter? When, when does that second... Um, round of 90 degrees phase shift uh, at, at audio take place, or do you just leave it as a as a binaural receiver? Go ahead. Yep. Um, what I did, I left it, or I did have it as on. I do have it as a true SSB or reasonably single signal receiver. The reasons why I say reasonably single signal is that. With a simple audio phase shift network, there are limitations, in particular achieving a uniformly high degree of rejection across the whole audio spectrum. Um, that's, that's some of the compromises with simple rigs. Um, I'm sure you've mentioned somewhere along the line the Tucker Tin. Uh, that was designed by um, ZL2AMJ, and there were a couple of versions there was a valve version around 1962, and that used as the audio phase shift network, I think just one, trend, uh, just one capacitor and one resistor. And that provided an audio phase shift around one kilohertz, but the uh, result is that the audio phase shift was not accurately 90 degrees at all other frequencies away from one kilohertz. And the consequence of that is that the sideband rejection is worse when you get away from one kilohertz on, on the other side of the suppressed carrier. And so what he actually did to try and counteract that was that he used a narrow audio bandwidth by using a carbon microphone. So the audio was not particularly bassy or I would suspect pleasant to listen to, but that's one way that he was able to, to do that. Um, if you add a few more components, um, you might have heard of polyphase networks with lots of resistors and capacitors and quite a few op amps, then uh, they achieve quite good phase, uh, 90 degree phase shift over quite a wide audio range. The SP5 AHT circuit is somewhat intermediate. Um, just looking at the circuit, the phase shift network has two capacitors and two resistors. The resistors are in a sort of a crossed configuration, hard to describe, but they that has maximum phase shift at two spots uh, in the audio spectrum. So it's a lot better than just the single um, spot that a single resistor and capacitor would deliver. And the audio phase shift is done, if you're just thinking of a receiver still, it's done between the product detector, 
where you've still got your two outputs at audio but separated by 90 degrees. Um, you've got your phase shift, audio phase shift applied between there and the audio filter. Um, if you don't have audio filtering then it's a bit like a direct conversion receiver without an audio filtering. You've got a very wide bandwidth and it's inefficient on transmit as well. Um, so it's a good idea to have a low pass audio filter around 3 kilohertz and also it's desirable to have a high pass audio filtering as well and you can do that. The simplest way of doing that is to use a lower than normal value of capacitor in series in the audio circuitry. So between the speaker and the audio amplifier or between the microphone and the microphone amplifier and again between the microphone amplifier and the uh, low pass audio filter. Um, so yeah, the two, just um, to do recap, the two signals that are phase split by 90 degrees from the twin product detectors go into the audio phase shift network and after that is your, they're combining to one signal um, and that goes into the audio low pass filter and then to the audio amplifier. That's on receive and on transmit it's exactly the reverse. Um, in this case though the audio amplifier, in my circuit I just left that on as a receive audio amplifier. There are some cases where you've, you might see very ingenious circuits that um, might use a minimum of transistors to do the job and they often require quite complex switching, switching inputs and outputs and the biases of the transistors may not be optimum for whatever you want to do the circuit. So sometimes it's worth it to go for one or two extra transistors in order to avoid switching things. Um, and of course that's one of the philosophies of the BitX because switching with relays or other transistors can just make things horribly complex and you can also have problems with isolation. And that was actually a problem I had initially with my SP5 AHT rig. It worked fine on receive but there was a funny feedback loop on transmit that took me a while to sort out. Uh, back to you, Bill. All right, very interesting. Um, thanks for sorting that out. I, I, I could see it. Now, I'm going to have to pull out the schematic from the uh, SP5AHT rig and study it a little bit further. But, Peter, everything you just were saying, it brought to mind another application of, of the phasing technique that we're seeing, and this brings us to the connection between the Helicrafters HT37 and the modern uh, software-defined uh, receivers, the modern SDRs, and, and that is, and, I, and I've come to understand this a little bit lately, and I, I just emphasize understand it a little bit, not completely, but um, I think when, when you mentioned the, the IQ receiver, with the 90 degree uh, phase shift there with the binaural, when you mentioned binaural, um, it brought to mind the, the direct conversion receivers that are being used as part of SDR systems because just as you tip those two phase shifted outputs and in SDR terms one would be I or in phase, the other would be Q or quadrature. If you took them and then sent them not to two different 
audio amplifiers, but sent them to the I and Q input ports of the sound card on your computer. Then you get into the, the whole world of, of SDR, and you could have that, that, that second round of phase shift that's necessary to, to come up with single, single signal reception take place inside the computer and you can you can now that now that you have the signal at audio or close to it within the range of the of the sound card in the computer you can do all of that di digital signal processing in in the computer and in here I think you, you get to see the uh, the real the real beauty of using a direct conversion receiver ahead of it now for example if I took a, a filtered a rig, a crystal a standard crystal filter super hat, and sent the in the output of that to the computer. Well, I suppose you could do some additional processing on the audio, but you're looking at one very specific frequency, the the one single frequency that's the, that that is the result of your your uh, single signal super hat receiver. Whereas with the the double sideband, I mean not the double sideband, but the direct conversion receiver that we've been describing, you could send a whole large chunk of the band to the SDR uh, system in the computer, and that's what produces these beautiful broadband panoramic um, views of the entire uh, frequency band on your uh, computer screen, and you can you can move that cursor around and flip from upper sideband to lower sideband, but a lot of that is based on the, the phasing techniques that, uh, that you've been describing, at least the first 90 degrees of it that produces the, the IQ. I wonder if you've, you've fooled around with these systems at all, and I wonder if you relate that to, the, to your work on the SP5AHT rig, VK3YE and 2CQR. In 2CQR, VK3YE, yeah, I actually built um, software-defined radio like that, I think a little bit before messing around with SP5AHT and it ties in very well with what we were talking about earlier with the binaural receiver because an SDR is basically a binaural receiver um, where you've got the two INQ signals going to your stereo sound card, most important for processing my first experiments with software-defined radios, um, loosely defined, was as a means of lazily building a direct conversion receiver because I knew that sound cards, especially their microphone inputs, had quite high gain. Um, they were designed for use with electric microphones. And so... What what I did was now now if if you've got all you really need to do this is an RF signal generator and some sort of diode product detector. Um, that, that's all you need to receive amateur signals on a computer. Um, now there is some software-defined radio software. Um, from memory, the one I've had good results with is called SD Radio by I2 PhD, I think. I2PHD, I could be wrong, um, but that's a very good program that you can download. And the idea is basically using the sound card as a back end of a direct conversion receiver. 
Now, that is a problem in that with a mono sound card or mono microphone input, which most of the cheaper computers um, would, would have, ideally you'd want a uh, stereo audio input. With that, you do not have single signal reception. So it is no better than an ordinary direct conversion receiver. But I'm a big believer in putting a few bits together to actually hear signals. Um, and you want to get to that point as simply and quickly as you can. Because once you hear your first amateur signals on a homebrew receiver, that gives you motivation to do more, make it better, and you can then claim that you have built a receiver. And a lot of amateurs have not built a receiver, and they think it's too complex. So the first step is the most important, that of using the fewest bits possible to hear signals, but being aware also of the limitations of that and learning how to improve it. So I'd certainly recommend people build a very basic, loosely defined software-defined radio comprising of a, a local oscillator. It could even be a crystal oscillator. Um, in a, you need to use a crystal in a, a reasonably active part of the band or within around 20 or to 50 kilohertz of it, um, so you can tune a segment of the band that you know there's activity, uh, maybe a pop, near a popular CW or SSB part of the band. And from there, you put the output of that local oscillator signal, uh, which might only be, say, 5 milliwatts, into a diode-balanced uh, product detector. You could actually use just a, a single diode or even a, a FET um, detector, but the front-end strong signal performance isn't so good, and the signals, and, and you may be overwhelmed by broadcast signals. You, you might need to mess around with bandpass filters, or if you've got an antenna tuning unit, or which are, uh, like a Z-match, which offers quite a narrow band, or alternatively a narrow band antenna like a magnetic loop that can work as a bandpass filter, then that can provide RF selectivity. So you basically need only a small number of building blocks to get amateur signals on your computer. A local oscillator, a mixer, which um, is the product detector, and optionally some audio filtering. If your computer sound card gain is high enough, or it's, it's a low noise type, then you may not need any audio amplification at all to hear amateur signals, but normally I'd suggest at least one stage. And that could actually be applied at the RF end, RF amplification, or at the audio end just after the product detector between that and the computer. So that's the very simplest starting point. Now, and that will provide you with a direct conversion receiver. You can tune signals um, on the computer um, with the mouse. So that gives you some of the basic experiences of using a software-defined radio. But of course, the thing is that these signals will appear mirror image about the carrier or the, or the center frequency, which is the frequency of the crystal that you're using. And the reason for that is that you're not offering any single signal or, or opposite sideband suppression. And to do that, there's a couple of things you need. First of all, you need um, a computer or sound card with stereo audio inputs. More often than not, they are at line level. Therefore, you need some extra audio amplification. Um, 
in fact it, it, it's effectively a stereo amplifier because you're amplifying two channels of audio now to actually get those two channels of audio then you need two product detectors as well um, and then and most importantly into those product detectors you must feed signals local oscillator signals that are phase shifted by 90 degrees from one another and to do that you can in its simplest form you can just use a capacitor and a variable resistor um, now the variable resistor it's quite fascinating to actually set that up you can um, tune to a signal either an amateur band signal or coming from a local signal generator say 10 or 20 kilohertz away from your center frequency and when you adjust the phasing um, with the simplest approach um, you you'll see one column you'll you have a spectrum display on the computer screen uh, your desired signal and your undesired signal um, and you'll see one column stay high while the other column drops down and there'll normally be a spectrum display on the screen so you can marked in 10 dB steps so you can see how much you're suppressing the signal and you should be able to suppress the unwanted signal by say 20 or 30 dB and then it's not still not quite a single signal reception but that is enormously satisfying it's a bit like if you build a double sideband rig it's enormously satisfying nulling out the balance modulator so the carrier is almost nothing it's the same deal with software defined radio um, with a phasing approach you're nulling out the um, the unwanted sideband response by ensuring that the phasing shift is exactly 90 degrees and you do that with the correct resistor and capacitor values of course there are broadband phase shift networks um, there's a method in experimental me uh, methods for RF design which I think use uh, toys and some capacitors but I like the idea at least initially of just using a trim pot preferably a 10 turn trim pot as the turning will be uh, very very sensitive to get a, a the, the null is very deep and, and narrow and a fixed capacitor on the output of your local oscillator between that and the two product detectors so that's one of the great experiences of messing around with radio and with software defined radio and computers and displays that you see on the screen it's a lot easier than ever before and you don't need to own oscilloscopes or anything like that these days all right yeah well, you, you're kind of bringing it all together here Peter that's right and uh, you know the idea about you know a really simple really really simple direct conversion receiver just feeding into the uh, into the sound card of the computer I, I got that idea a while back from from Sprat, from our beloved Sprat, uh, I remember there was a, an article in there by a radio amateur in Spain, I forget his call, but he presented the, the simplest of direct conversion receivers, just like you said, a diode detector with uh, an RF source, an RF generator, and uh, he, uh, he, then he, he showed going into the sound card, and I said to myself, well, I, I've just got to do that, and I, I did. And I use the software program. I use the program called FL Digi. FL Digi. I think it's fast and light digital, and uh, free free software. And with it, I was able to um, to, to decode uh, PSK31 signals and all kinds of other things. And I eventually built a uh, a rig like this using just a simple direct conversion 
the receiver, and I ran I ran it at um, the oscillator would run at 10.138 megahertz, and that would that was a good frequency to get the, for the whisper system, the weak system, weak signal propagation reporter system by Joe Taylor, K1JT, and then I I actually went ahead and built a um, a, a, a double sideband transmitter for it. So I was I was sort of cheating on both sides on on both on receive and transmit, and I was taking taking advantage of the fact that the the opposite sideband was just out of the um, out of the passband that we were looking at. So it would just be off the screen. I suppose it, it was kind of bad form because it could have been QRMing somebody else. But then of course because I was looking at both sides on the receive side, I could tell whether there was anybody there or not. And in any case, I was running like a quarter watt or something like that to a dipole, so I don't think I would have done much damage. But indeed, you could do a lot with just real simple direct conversion techniques, and that gets us back to Wes Hayward in his 1968 QST article called uh, Direct Conversion, or forgot the Forgotten Technique. Well, forgotten no more, because now it's, uh, it's playing a role in everything we've uh, we've described here and yeah and I, I guess this i guess a good way to wrap this up uh, peter because i think we're approaching the uh the one hour point here but is to to get back to what you said there a comment that 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 so many radio amateurs think that that receivers are just too hard to build and that does seem to be a very kind of deep deeply held belief and i think it's unfortunate because especially when you get into the direct conversion receivers they're very very easy to build and uh, and everybody should should build at least one. They're just so much fun, and I I love the sound of, of you mentioned the, the the special sound of the binaural receivers. I I just think a, a direct conversion receiver has such a such an amazing sound. It's it sounds like you're just directly connected to the ether to the radio waves, and it it's it's it doesn't have any of that kind of pinched or uh, kind of confined sound that that you sometimes get from modern transceivers. So uh, anybody's out there looking to, to build something, uh, build a little direct conversion receiver, and just listen. It's just just great fun. Well, Peter, like I said, I think that brings us to the end of uh, this edition. I hope we'll get together soon and talk about something else. You might want to mention anything you might, you might think is a possible next subject. In the days ahead, I'm going to be trying to finish up this uh, Bidex rig. I have to go out and uh, acquire some parts. Thank God Radio Shack is, is still in operation here. Although I understand it might not be too long, unfortunately. Um, but I'm going to go out and I'm going to pick up a few odds and ends, bits and bobs, as they say. And uh, I'm always running out of 0.1 microfarad capacitors. So I'm thinking about going out and just buying a mass order. I, I've, I've spotted some place where you could get 100 of them for, for $10. So I need a big box of 0.1 microfarad capacitors. That seems to be the one part that I use more than any other component. So I've got to go out and buy a bunch of those. Need a couple of. I need a 2N 3904 uh, transistor because I'm building the audio amplifier on this thing without the LM386. You know, I've got. I've become somewhat kind of obsessive and fanatical about uh, discrete components. So I've banned chips. No chips. All discrete. So I'm. Uh, I'm homebrewing the uh, a discrete component audio amp. Uh, designed by a fellow named Arv Evans, who's very active in the FedEx groups. So before you go, Peter, just tell us what's what, what, what's on your bench here uh, uh, as the new year approaches, and then we'll we'll wrap it up and 
and and, uh, and hopefully talk again real soon. VK3YE into CQR. Into CQR, VK3YE. You're fine, Bill. Um, well, it never actually made it to my bench because it was built outside, um, sitting on the ground amongst a pile of bits and pieces from old TV antennas. Um, and uh, that, that's another thing. Um, I think other countries have moved to digital TV, but here in Australia, in Melbourne, we've just switched off our analog television system. And, of course, the digital TV use channels above um, above about 170 megahertz or thereabouts, um, VHF, high band, and UHF, whereas previously, analog TV used channels as low as 45 megahertz, which was a bit of a problem for some of the six meter people. But it also meant that the old TV antennas had elements long enough for two meter antennas. And with the uh, uh, move to digital, there have been some old antennas thrown out, people thinking that they are not suitable for digital use. And so that has meant a good supply of old antennas. So I've been building a four element Yagi for two metres um, because in summer we have the um, tropospheric propagation, we have the uh, um, warm evenings and afternoons and the enhancement of propagation and uh, being here in, in Melbourne there is the potential of working across the Great Australian Bight. I'd imagine for, um, for Americans, it would be like working across the Gulf of Mexico or, or something like that. Um, and so I built up a four-element Yagi, just from old TV antenna bits, and uh, that has been a great project. And um, um, quite a few people here on 2 meters SSB work aircraft enhancement. Um, they bounce signals off aircraft that are flying in the middle of where the two stations are. Um, and you can achieve some quite amazing distances, even with QRP. So last Sunday, um, oh, well, um, a few days ago anyway, I went up to a, a local hill not too far from here called Oliver's Hill and just had the FT817, 5 watts and the 4-element Yagi just on a squid pole antenna mast and, uh, and worked into uh, VK1. That's a distance of nearly 500 kilometres and... Uh, I don't think conditions were particularly enhanced, but um, um, that's just because there were aircraft flying over. Um, Sydney to Melbourne is one of the busiest air, um, air traffic corridors in the world, so we're lucky here in Melbourne that we can uh, make use of that to make contacts between uh, at least Melbourne and, and Canberra. So, uh, so that's been uh, uh, um, a, uh, a worthwhile project. I haven't done a lot of building lately because the, being the summer I've tended to be outdoors a lot um, and trying various antennas and portable operating. But I do have a Bitex type rig. Um, unlike other rigs, it's more for home station use. So it, it isn't as small as some of my other rigs. But the benefit of it is that a rig that's in a reasonable size box can be added to as inclination permits. And it is already on the air, but there are some changes I want to make, um, including a, a, a proper better CW facilities and uh, audio filtering and various other bits and pieces. So that's 
the main project and that's for 7 megs as well. I should build equipment for bands other than 7 megs sometimes but uh, that tends to be the band where I make most of my contacts. Anyway, thanks for the um, contact Bill. It's been a pleasure and uh, no doubt uh, we'll talk again into CQR VK3Y. Okay, Peter, real good. Wow, what a, what a, what a kind of picturesque kind of very evocative way to wrap things up. There you are. First of all, you know, you, you just reminded me that you're in summertime, so we're, we're all we're all jealous. And then the idea of taking that two-meter homebrew Yagi out on an Australian summer day and um, bouncing signals off aircraft, and so that you can cross the Great Australian Bight. Well, that's that's got to be uh, that's got to be a, an amazing ham radio experience. And thanks for telling us about it. Uh, no, Peter, yeah, I'm, I'm a believer in uh, in in big cabinets, so I'm I'm building these Pidex rigs in these big cigar boxes with a lot of extra space. I uh, I uh, I get I, I always make the mistake, and I start out with a box that's too small, and in the end, I wish I had more space. So lately, I've kind of erred in the opposite direction, and these Pidexes are in big boxes, big box Pidexes. Well, you build for uh, for seven megahertz and. I've been building too much for uh, for 18, so I'm going to have this rig on 40 and 20. I bet you'll have it on the air uh, sometime in January, and I'll I'll give you a report. We'll uh, we'll compare notes, but I hope we can get together uh, real soon, do another show, and maybe you could tell us about uh, bouncing those signals off the airplanes. That'll be great. Thanks very much for joining us, uh, Peter. Have a, a very happy New Year. Happy New Year to all the Soda Smoke listeners, and uh, enjoy your summer down there, Peter. Uh, 7-3 from Northern Virginia, VK3YEN2CQR, 7-3. Yeah, cheers, Bill. Thanks for the contact and Happy New Year. Uh, N2CQR, VK3YE, clear.